We're at a really interesting point in wildlife conservation because we have succeeded in preserving large predators such as bears and wolves. But now that we've saved them, we have to live with them. And paradoxically, part of this current management solution in the US is to kill them. So every year, federal agents kill more than 90,000 wolves, bears, cougars and coyotes. But do they have to die? I mean, should they be killed or, or are there better ways? How can we live together with animals that, that do have the potential to kill us? Biologist and wildlife management expert John Shivik's new book, The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars and Coyotes, deals with these important questions and argues that our solutions to these issues should be more than just slaughter. You're listening to Pod Academy. My name's Craig Barfoot. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Uh, the large predators that you focus on in your book, uh, bears, coyotes, wolves, are they currently endangered? Uh, no, and, and not really. And it's quite, it's, uh, at the moment, we're in this really neat, really great point in time where we've brought these animals back. So we probably have more mountain lions than we've had in quite a few years. And then same with wolves. Wolves are doing quite well across, you know, Alaska and Canada into the U.S. Uh, you know, there's 70,000 or so wolves. Wolves are actually doing fairly well in Europe. There's, what, 10 populations and several thousand there. So they're doing okay. And But this is why these kinds of, this thinking I think is pretty crucial right now because what I am worried about is the pendulum swinging back the other way. So if we don't have ways of as predator populations grow and human populations grow, if we don't have methods of finding out how to coexist with these animals, my concern is, is we, you know, we overreact and we wipe them all out again. We've shown really well, you know, that we can wipe these animals out and we've got this kind of crucial bit in time now where they're coming back and it'd sure be nice to kind of move more towards coexistence rather than panicking when whenever there's any kind of a conflict with us and a cougar for instance. So at the moment are we just killing large predators in order to manage them uh, simply because this is what we've always done? I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean there's a certain amount of tradition um, we're relying on the traditional up oh, let's go out there and gun these animals and then then look at look at the body count therefore we've done something so a lot of times we're measuring success over here um, and I have to be a little careful because I am you know broadly generalizing and you know it's it's um, it's a complicated situation and not everybody's this way but in general they're really measuring body counts. The, the agency that's doing this, their reports are the numbers and species of animals that they kill. And the tables are huge. So I, I think that's that's been the approach over here is to <clears throat> kill these things and look, and then we can say, look at what we've done. We've killed these things rather than, uh, wow, look at these problems we've solved or look at how we're able to still have cattle here and st still have wolves here. And so that's what I'm trying to change the argument to, to get away from one of just look at how many animals we've killed to look at how many animals we have. What sort of threat are these predators to people at the moment? I mean, what are the kind of the, the, I guess the gory statistics? It's pretty, it's okay. Uh, coyotes are probably the most... Um, you know, threatening of them only because there's a lot more coyotes. Um, they're smaller animals. They're, you know, there's the size of a small dog, really, and they're, they're not that um, 
uh, they're not going to be. It's pretty rare that they're going to really hurt anybody. However, uh, due largely to human, I guess uh, you know, people not knowing how to act around these animals, they do the wrong thing. Um, coyotes will move into suburban areas or even urban areas, and people will feed them either knowingly or unknowingly. Uh, they'll leave their pet food out or something, or they'll leave garbage out, or they'll even throw them a sandwich now and again, which happens. Then these animals become what's called habituated. They become used to people. They lose their fear of people. Then when somebody shows up and doesn't have a sandwich, then that can lead to things like bites. It can lead to things like a coyote actually grabbing a small child and trying to run away with it. Coyotes do bite people. Um, and it does, it, it does happen. It's not anything that's particularly, uh, you know, widespread everywhere, but it's, it's, it's not common, but it's not impossible, I guess is the point. Um, and it's probably going to be, it's definitely growing more and more as more people and more coyotes interact. So it's something that's growing. Things like mountain lions um, or bears are, there's fewer of those animals, but they're a lot bigger. And because of that, they tend to be more dangerous. Things like a cougar, um, you know, it's very rare for a cougar to kill somebody, but they do. That's the other thing um, that the message here is that these animals are carnivores. They are predators. They kill things for a living. We shouldn't be surprised uh, if they do attack somebody or kill a person. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't be uh, afraid. We should be respectful of these animals, but not terrified of these animals. And, and that's the message I'm trying to get across. You are, you know, thousands of times <clears throat> more likely to be struck by lightning in the U.S. than killed by a mountain lion. But we, if a mountain lion kills one person, it's all over the news, it's in books, it's all over the place, where we don't really hear when people are struck by lightning quite as much. So I'm trying to just kind of put things in perspective. And, and it's important to realize that, yes, these animals can kill people. Do they normally? No, it's very rare. I think I've got, I can think of only two or three reports where wolves have, a uh, wolf killed a teacher in Alaska uh, just in 2012. Um, so it does happen. It's, you know, any one death, of course, is too many, uh, but it's not a blatant plague upon the earth. It's something um, that can happen, we should be aware of, and, but we can also prepare for it. What things we can do. What about the effects that predators have on livestock? Right. And that's something that's more of an impact, too, um, where coyotes do do millions uh, worth of damage uh, to especially sheep and goats and those kinds of things uh, across the U.S. where we range those animals. Things like wolves, um, you know, relative to the whole cattle industry or beef industry, wolves, bears, the damage they do is pretty minuscule. They really don't do a lot. However, if you are the particular rancher that those animals have, have moved onto your land or onto your allotment, then it can be quite devastating. Uh, you know, to put a human element on it, and it's pretty easy sometimes for people, especially in the U.S., to, to paint ranchers as these, I don't know, just these big, greedy, they don't care about the environment sort of people. But in my travels, you know, putting the ideas for this book together, I met, you know, who are real people, real ranchers, you know, uh, the one really that impacted me was this, she's a widow, she's living basically in a little trailer and she's eking out an existence with 20 cattle that she sells off the, the young for her cash every year. So she's just, you know, this is subsist, subsistence. You know, wolves go in and kill two cattle 
um, you know, which doesn't sound like a lot, you know, statistics-wise, but to her, that was her whole year. So I think it's important to realize that the, the numbers can be um, a little deceiving because people can throw numbers of millions this and millions that and or just only have two cattle, but I, I, I have to put it, frame it in the human reference of who they're really impacting. So on a regional or national level, the impact's pretty minor, but on a local and personal level, it's very intense. And that's why um, our relationships with these animals are so emotional. In your book, you seem to be really balanced between the perspectives of the farmers and, and ranchers who are trying to protect their livestock and the conservationists who don't want to see any of them killed. Right. Well, see, this is the thing. that the, <clears throat> This is a difficult aspect of this concept. And with the book, I hope I was successful trying to thread that needle. Uh, I'm really pragmatic here. There's a, a lot of rhetoric on both sides. Um, you know, if, if, if you want to pick up a book that's going to say, here's all the answers, all you have to do is do the, you know, get rid of all the people. I'm not going to say that. Or from the other side, you know, if you want to pick up a book that's, that says, oh, just, we can just kill all the predators and then we won't have any livestock damage. Um, I'm not going to say that either. So I've already kind of based it on this assumption that we want to have both. We want to have our, you know, that's the, that's our paradox. We want to have predators around, but we don't want to have the conflicts or problems that they can, that they can cause. So that's the point here is to realize we are humans on the earth. We make impacts on the earth, whether it's through farming and or through gathering meat and protein or, you know, we, we have impacts. We have ways that we get along with nature or don't get along with nature. And what I'm trying to identify here are ways that we can soften those impacts, ways that we can have bears and wolves and coyotes and cougars uh, in, in the U.S. and wolves and, and brown bears in, the, in Europe as well. We can have those and have people and still have cheap available uh, food supplies. But things do have to give. We do have to be more clever. We do have to accept that there will be losses sometimes on the livestock side. Or we have to accept that sometimes we might have to remove a predator on the other side. It's about, it's about really trying to balance. It's, it's a difficult proposition. The second part of your book, uh, you really go through and discuss a lot of solutions and ways of managing and dealing with this situation. Um, before we dive into that, maybe could you talk a little bit about it? It's quite interesting, the ecological significance of reintroducing a top predator like the wolf back into an area. Right. And that's something that's very um, topical these days, where they find that there's this concept, and it's, it's, it's not really that new of a concept. We've been talking about this in ecology for decades, this idea of a keystone species, which is, is, is a species that has a big impact and kind of holds the whole ecosystem together. And there's a lot of discussion lately about wolves being one of those species because wolves will kill, we might have an ecosystem in and around Yellowstone, is a famous example of it, where elk uh, can populate large numbers of elk, they can go down the lowlands, they can eat uh, willow species and some of these other riparian type species. And then when you introduce, um, and then what that does, that does that sort of, um, you kind of have as a sort of overgrazing uh, impact. Then if you introduce a species like a wolf, the wolf will not only kill 
uh, elk, but can also change their behavior where they're welcome or vulnerable down those lowlands and riparian areas. So they want to hide more in the woods and kind of stay out of those vulnerable places or those places where the wolves can kill them. So the argument is that the, the, the elk change their behavior. That allows willows and other species like that to grow. And when those fill in, then it's good habitat for beaver. And then beaver can do their dams and do all their things. And, and just by having this one species there, there's different, they call them trophic cascades. There's different um, impacts through the, you know, what wolves eat and what elk eat and then what beaver eat and then the fish eat and so one species can have this huge impact on how the land looks and and that's one of the arguments saying hey if we have wolves around then we can have this kind of more whole functioning ecosystem so you uh, mentioned in the book many different examples of uh, of some some possible solutions uh, i have to tell you i think my favorite is the guard llamas <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah uh, how often are guard llamas used, and why are they effective? Right. So llamas tend to hate canids. They just kind of uh, don't like them. And uh, if a dog gets in near them, they will they will chase them down and and stomp on them, which makes it pretty difficult. So things like llamas can be pretty helpful with a small canid, like a coyote. Um, with wolves, mm, they can be prey themselves. Um, so we have to. Um, Gotta, that's the important aspect here of realizing there isn't one magic solution. And that's why I discussed so many different methods because some things that work for a bear um, or, or a wolf won't work for a bear or that work for a coyote won't work for a wolf. So that's why it's important to have this broad perspective and broad thinking and saying, wow, we can try these different things. What about technology? Where, where are we at with the technological defenses? Well, this is the thing, too, is, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, things have changed a lot in terms of, you know, grocery store laser scanners and automatic doors and iPods and pads and drones and satellites. And I don't know, I'm sort of in a, I'm just amazed at the technology that's out there. And I'm not even talking rocket science with a lot of these things. Um, some animals, just a, a light sensor and a siren is a good start at keeping them out of a, out of a pasture. <clears throat> or things like um, just automatic lights that turn on when it gets dark out. Or motion detectors are wonderful um, things that we can incorporate into frightening devices. One of the devices I made, and this was, gosh, quite a few years ago, um, if we have radio collared wolves or bears or whatever, uh, I made a device that's a scanning receiver. If it heard a wolf approach where the pasture was, if it heard, heard the wolf's electronic collar, then the device would turn on and you'd have a siren and lights, which would scare the wolf away, but they could also wake people and let them know that they should get out and scare these animals away. So there's ways we can, who knows what we're going to be able to do with things like those, these little drones and, and whatever in the future. But my hope is that it'll stimulate some thinking about how we can um, use old school, you know, use old methods like guard dogs, but also use newer methods like electronics to, uh, to help us coexist with these predators. You mentioned many uh, different deterrent methods in your book, but there's one that I'd really like to talk about, which is conditioned taste aversion. Can you explain a little bit what this is and, and just how it works? Right. Conditioned taste aversion is a very uh, interesting phenomenon, and it's a very powerful one. Uh, 
and, and something we've tried to figure out how we can get into management and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to have some more successes with it. Specifically, um, hmm, the best way to describe it because a lot of people have experienced the same effect. Usually over here it has to do with something like tequila and one's first um, oh, uh, impact by it where someone has tequila for the, for the first time. They get terribly sick overnight and the next day and then for years later the smell of it will just make your stomach queasy. Or oftentimes people eat a certain food and have gotten the flu the next day and if you link an illness with a particular new flavor you've got this very powerful conditioning. It only takes one time. You know, one experience and then you are conditioned very strongly against that particular particular flavor or that particular smell. It's pretty amazing. And we can do this to animals as well and um, use this to try to teach animals to stay away from particular smells, flavors, or taste. And this is something that's been very strongly documented in the lab. You can do this with everything from bees to beef to, to whatever. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, you talk about the bear study uh, to see what effect uh, that this had, but, but this, this didn't work. Right. So that was, I know, that was frustrating. So what we had is a situation where bears would, the, one of the biggest problems bears do is, is they break into campgrounds. People leave food around campgrounds, they leave garbage, um, and then bears learn to go to, to eat the food in the campground. And this, we're talking about black bears here, especially American black bears. They are so food motivated. They basically have to do a whole year's worth of eating in nine months because then they go and hibernate. So they need to put weight on and need to put weight on quickly. So they just are walking stomachs and they're just looking to eat. And when they come across things like donuts or, or, or sandwiches or, or beer or whatever that people have left around, they want to, you know, camp out there and they want to eat that food, which can lead to, again to habituation and problems with people and bears and campgrounds. So it's pretty important to keep them away from campgrounds as best we can. And um, the idea here with this study, we want to see if we can lace these campgrounds, lace the cans with a, a diabendazole, which is a deworming agent, which will also make them sick, and see if we can condition the bears against it. As it turned out, um, <clears throat> we have way more bears out there than we were even able to condition. And so even though you can condition one bear, others would come in. And so although we had some effect of, um, you know, moving bears around and, and having them avoid some places, we didn't make it work. You know, it wasn't 100%. And that's another lesson here to have about all these methods. And there's that saying about you can fool, you know, some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time. Well, it's the same with these carnivores. It's the same with these predators. Um, what works for 90, there are, every one of these methods, you know, might work for some 90% of the animals, but there's always 10% of them are they're going to outsmart, outsmart us. And that's why it's so important to realize that you can't just have conditioned flavor avoidance, or you just can't have electronics, or you just can't have guard dogs. We need to, to, to think about these things through, think, think these things through and to be able to apply different methods for different situations for different animals. And that's the, uh, you know, another take-home message here. We've got to be, you can't just expect to go out there, try one thing up and for the problem to be done. It's going to take effort. If you kill or remove a predator, I'm guessing it's just a matter of time before its territory is then just filled by another predator. 
Right, and and here's here's something where lethal can actually be lethal removal can actually be counterproductive, especially when you have territorial animals. So the lethal approach sort of assumes that every coyote kills sheep or every wolf kills cattle, and that's not the case. There are definitely situations where coyotes will have a territory in an area and they're doing fine on rabbits and rodents and all these other things that they typically eat. And they're not killing sheep. That's a great situation. Now, if you go in there and remove those coyotes, you're not killing off all coyotes. That's not very likely. Other ones are going to come on in. And now you've opened yourself up to an opportunity to an animal that will actually kill sheep. And I know when I look at uh, data, and I've done regressions where, where you remove coyotes, it also it messes up the social structure. You might remove only one coyote in a pair that now has to feed pups, you know, herself. Then she's there's that much more demand to to kill larger prey items, and and removing just sort of haphazardly removing removing a few coyotes here and there. My argument is that that can actually lead to more livestock damage. And if you have a situation where you have a territorial animal and you don't have a problem, you need to keep those animals around because they function as essentially guard coyotes. They're keeping other ones from coming in and, and killing livestock. Same with wolves. That's the, the fascinating thing I found about your book is this idea of the, the title of the book of the predator paradox. And this idea of the relationship between people and the animals and that this relationship is not a black and white right that there are a lot of issues and uh, i guess the, the a phrase that you used uh, the continued survival of our great mammalian predators is largely a problem of communication empowerment and trust C can you expand on that for me just a little bit oh wow yes because so much about this and i think i say elsewhere you know in a lot of ways managing managing animals is easy but managing people is hell and and the difficulty is is these predators have great emotional symbolism they have um there's there they do cause damage they cause damage intensely in small places um and which leads to this big emotional mix from people one, one, one theme I think that's pretty explicit throughout is fear. And I think that's really the guiding emotion for people here. We have rural cultures in the U.S. and, and Europe as well where people have grown up with the land. They've grown up raising livestock. Um, they're afraid of losing their livelihood and dumping something like a wolf or a bear in the middle of their livestock operation is not just a business proposition. And, and this, is, this is an important thing to communicate. Uh, it's too easy to paint it as, oh, those guys are just in it for the money. Well, that's not true. Most of these people are really eking by. They're barely making an existence. The ones that I've met are doing it because they love the land, they love the animals, and they really want to raise their children this way. In a lot, in a lot of ways, it's a very noble pursuit. There's a lot of arguments in the U.S. about how children, if they don't experience nature anymore, they don't, they're not out with animals, they're not out 
you know, walking across fields, or they don't know what a flower is, or a tree species is, or different animals are. Whereas people that are raising livestock, they're raising their children around animals, around the natural world. They're out there in, in the worst weather and in the best weather, and they're really experiencing it. And I really respect that. And I also understand that dumping something like a wolf in, where all of a sudden it's killing their, their sheep and lambs, um, that is something that's terrifying because it's not only losing their their business and the way they make their their living they're losing their livelihood they're losing their connection with the with the real world and it seems what like, you know it's really paradoxical isn't it by adding more you know in quotes nature to their world we're kind of kicking them out of it and that's what that fear is so we need to make sure we acknowledge and understand different people's value systems and not just paint them as these are the evil ranchers because they're not they're people too and we need to come up with solutions that will help them um, raise their livestock and feed us in a way that uh, you know they can they can be successful and we can be successful in the u.s or anywhere in the world really is it is it regulated i mean if you are going to move into an area where it's a known wolf area. Are you, when you're buying your house, is that part of the conversation? Is that part of the deal? <laughs> well, I wish it was more. Um, it, people, <clears throat> there's there's a funny human psychology too where people will first, oh, the country, it's so quaint, it's so nice, and they move out, and then they plant their flowers, and then the deer move in and eat them, or a coyote eats their house cat or something, and and it goes from this idyllic, perfect little world to, boy, I hate these deer, and I hate these coyotes, and all this kind of thing, and it's because we're not, you know, we're not being aware, we're not thinking through, and that's, again, it's about, you know, human education and human understanding of you know, kind of renaturalizing ourselves a little bit. I'd like us to interact a little bit better with nature, which means I'd like us to, if we move out into the country or whatever, is to realize, oh, we can, you know, coyotes will take a cat if you let the cat out. And, oh, coyotes will cause bigger problems if I leave pet food out or garbage out or whatever. And allow us to realize we're part of nature and the things that we do in, you know, impact those species and then those species impact us. So it's about opening our eyes a little bit and realizing where we fit in and realize what the cost and benefits are of, of, of living in these environments. It's this concept, I guess, of opening our eyes that really, or this relationship that we have with nature or don't have that really drew me to, to this idea. And especially, I mean, if we, if we, don't eradicate all predators, and I think gone are the days when we really wanted to do this, to just to kill them off completely. I, I we, hope so, it, but I, I worry sometimes that if we don't, you know, if, we, if people, if fear overtakes things, um, people, humans can do pretty, pretty amazingly horrific things. But that's the thing. I mean, it, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a really hard concept. I mean, if you don't eradicate the predators, it means you have to live with them. Uh, but that, exactly. I mean, but that to some extent means you have to accept the idea that some people are going to get hurt and, and maybe die. Right. I mean, that's that's a tough thing to accept, isn't it? Though, and and that's that's it. So I I think we can do a lot, you know, to keep people from dying. Um, but you, yeah, I I I, th I have to argue that nature is a rough place and. Um, except, you know, I, I even talk about hunting in this book a little bit, sort of accepting the responsibility of living in the natural world 
in that, yes, we'd like to reduce suffering as much as we can, but living in the natural world, not just watching it on a nature show, means that you're going to experience some of that suffering as well. But, you know, that's the natural experience. And, and I like to think there's some, there's some beauty in that too. There's a lot of joy, but there's also a lot of pain. And that's, that's called living. That's, it's a, it's an, a point of view that you don't often hear expressed. I mean, if I want to save a turtle and live with a turtle, it's, it's, that's one, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but if I want to save a bear that lives next door to me, there could be some repercussions. Yes. Right. And I'd like us to be able to do that. But we need to weigh the consequences. And I'd like to do that in a way that we can safeguard as much as possible. I mean, again, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the essence of this paradox. And the only way to dismantle it is to have enough tools and techniques that we can coexist with bears and we can have humans and bears and cougars and coyotes and wolves and all those in the same space and our livestock. Uh, but it's going to be an ongoing thing. It's really about viewing our relationship with these animals and, and changing that relationship with these animals so that we, you know, we give and we take. Um, and we have to acknowledge that and, and figure out how to do that in a balanced way. John, I really appreciate uh, both you writing the book and having the opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a, it a pleasure speaking with you about this. You have been listening to Program Coordinator for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, John Shivik, talk about his new book, The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars and Coyotes. My name's Craig Barfoot. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening.